As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. A personal hero of mine is here today, a New York Times bestselling author, a certified breathwork coach, restorative writing teacher who lives in Maryland. Have you guessed who it is yet? Writing came into her life by way of therapy and the exploration of healing through journaling and mindfulness. She has had an impact on millions of us, and the intention behind her work is to build community and healing practices through literature and language. Alex L., welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I cannot tell you how much I love you and how grateful I am to be sharing this space. My lady, I'm holding your book, How We Heal. It's so beautifully designed, by the way. I'm such a snob when it comes to book design, and this one is just epic. Our listener, if you don't have it, it's called How We Heal. Go look it up online. You'll see the cover. It's so pretty. So many wonderful comments about it, but I want to start where I started loving you, which are two lines that I put into my own journal way, way back and decided that I was somehow going to find you. You wrote, trauma does not have to be a resting place. You can love people deeply and not stay stuck in unhealthy patterns with them. Mm. What? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There are people in my life whom I have actually deep love for, and I don't have to stay in the pattern with them. It's such a release. So thank you for that. But I want to start with your book. The backbone of this journey through How We Heal is uh, four steps. And I am going to ask you how this came about, but I would like to read the steps for our listener first in case they want to go ahead and just buy the Kindle and start following along with us. I'm on page 14. Step one, we will tend to self-doubt and make room for new beginnings. Step two, We will work on learning how to befriend our fear so that it no longer controls us. Step three offers lessons in reclaiming your power and rewriting your story with intention. And finally, step four focuses on leaning into what feels good so that we can live with gratitude and joy. Now, I promise you, if you're listening to us and you are a teacher, a facilitator of any kind, a teacher of kids, a teacher of elders, this book is relevant. This book is basically a lifetime of relevant curricula for all of us, even yoga teachers. Journaling has been central to your work, so journaling is obviously central to this work. I want to applaud the guest speakers in this book. You've got Morgan Harper Nichols, one of my favorites, Glennon Doyle, uh, Megan Rapinoe, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, the soccer player, Mm -hmm. Dr. Tema, Tabitha. Oh, and Dr. Yaba Blay, like, what a lineup, what an all-star lineup. 
I can't get over it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your journaling journey, because I think it's important to our listener now to start to, you know, get to know you in case they don't, which is unlikely, and see where all of this is coming from. So let me start by saying I'm the only child. And so writing stories and poems and things was just something I did. Journaling was my friend. Writing was my friend. But we had a really unhealthy relationship. And it wasn't until I went to therapy at 19, 20 years old that I started writing to heal myself. And it was really radical for me because my therapist at the time, Miss B, who completely changed my life, I'm not sure I would be here in this career if it was not for her. She invited me to start being kind to myself on the pages of my journal, to start writing notes to myself that were not rooted in hatred and self-loathing and, and sadness but that were rooted in possibility and healing and compassion. And at that age, I didn't have the language I have now, but looking back, that's what she was asking me to do, to stop being so mean to myself on the page, to stop villainizing myself, and to start, quite frankly, loving myself in the way that I so desperately wanted to be loved growing up. Mm. And she was the first person to give me permission to be my own greatest teacher and to be my own mother. Like the reparenting that she was giving me back then, and nobody had that language back then like we do now. It was so radical for my little self. (laughs) And it was when I started writing to heal that I started writing to get clear, writing to get kind, and writing to get to know myself without the influence of anyone else, just me. We aren't taught this in school, and I wonder if there isn't some way to start a revolution in the schools where there is like writing to heal mm-hmm. as a requirement of every fifth grade student. <laughs> you know how mm-hmm. many lives we would save? Because mm-hmm. you would hear it. They don't have the veils yet. You know, there are some, but fewer than seventh, eighth, you get a kid in fifth grade, fourth grade writing about writing to heal in this way. Like, how do you be kind to yourself? How do you write love notes to yourself? Like for real, steeped in reality. How do we get out what is so painful? We might save like future drug use, future suicide, future deep pain. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm right there with you. This really needs to be taught in schools, like not even just the writing aspect, but the emotional awareness 101. Like, how do you feel? Who are you today? What don't you like? What don't you want? And like giving young people the freedom to identify those things. And as a mother of three daughters, I use this in my own home, like how we love and raise our children and how we encourage them to be autonomous is deeply sacred work and it's preparing them to be good humans. Yeah. It's also deeply subtle. Subtle work. Subtle sacred work. Yes. Yeah. It can't be overt, like teaching them how to really look out for themselves. It's sometimes in the things that we don't do 
you know, the teaching what can't be taught. So fascinating. I think that that's so powerful. I often say healing by example is a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. How we show up in the world is a real thing. People are watching. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go on in the book. I want our listener to be well attuned to what's happening in this book before we complete our chat. One of the stories that you start with is that story of kitchen trust, which I love. (laughs) I didn't get it until I was in my 40s, really. I was pretending that I trusted myself in the kitchen, but when I was in my 40s is when I finally actually started trusting myself and stopped following recipes and started actually cooking. Tell us a little bit about what it takes. I believe that at least one of our listeners today is having the same issue where the kitchen is sort of... uh, some forbidden ground where really terrible, terrible things happened in their childhood or things that they wish had happened didn't happen. And so the kitchen is really kind of a painful place and we might not even realize it. Tell us a little bit about this story. It's such a sweet one. It's quick and easy, but it does introduce us to the tone of the book, which is so intimate and familiar. Mm. So I open up the book with a story about starting from scratch, and it's about making peach cobbler with a girlfriend of mine. Um, We were away during the thick of the pandemic. She was a part of my pod, and we quarantined and made sure we were safe before we had our mama weekend together, and we met at this really cute Airbnb in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I was so excited to make her peach cobbler because I had been making it for weeks at that point. I had read Disha Filial's book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, and there was an essay in there on peach cobbler, and it blew my mind, blew my mind. And so I just became obsessed with making peach cobbler. I'm going to need to read that essay, by the way. get ready. Clearly. Get ready ready. Okay. Everyone needs to read that. Get ready. And so I decided, okay, we're going to make this peach cobbler. We had a great evening. And I took a picture of the beautiful, bubbling, delicious peach cobbler that had just come out of the oven. And I sent it to my mom and my grandmother. And my grandmother replied with, your great grandmother would be proud. She was the queen of peach cobbler. Mm. And my mother replied with, oh, your cooking is improving. And to some, you could see my face. (laughs) (laughs) To some people, that may not be a big thing, but to me, it was a big thing because my mom and I have had a very tumultuous relationship, and we are in the healing space of our relationship. During that time, we were also in a healing space, and I was just really taken aback by her dismissiveness, by her snide comment that I received as snide. She may not have meant it that way, but that's how I received it, given our history. And so I was hurt by that. I was angry. I was annoyed, frustrated. And I just broke down and started crying. And my friend was so comforting. And we had a really great talk about the situation. And then I called my husband and I was, you know, fussing at him about it. And he so graciously, as he always does when I'm needing a moment of openness, (laughs) he said to me after I finished, your mother is who she is and you know this. 
And I said, you're right. And he goes, you have to stop expecting her to be who she isn't. (sighs) Yeah. And I was like, you are right. This is typical of her. Not in a harsh way, but just some people are who they are. They don't know how to just say, yum, that looks great, or great job, or a heart emoji. Sometimes people are so wrapped up in their own inner turmoil and their own stuff that they can't show up for us in the ways that we expect them to, especially when it comes to a parent that you already have kind of a interesting relationship with. And so I learned in that moment to soften and to not take it personal and to also give myself permission to, yes, feel how I feel, but to speak up. So the next time that happens, I can say, hey, mom, I didn't like that. And here's why. And open up the space of dialogue because I know that in our relationship now, I can do that. 10 years ago, not so much, but now I can. So sometimes it's about us adjusting, accepting first, and adjusting. And let's not get accepting confused with making an excuse, but it's simply the letting things be what they will that we know we cannot change. As you very aptly say on page 24, I could either make peace with the reality of my circumstances or continue putting myself in situations where I expect different results knowing I won't get them. Mm. Welcome to the real world of human beings. (laughs) So nice to have you here. Yes. Um, You go on on page 25. There's something I wanted to mark for our reader, too, toward the bottom. Allow the adversity in your life to show you just how much you are learning. Mm. It's about the sixth line from the bottom there on page 25. Morgan Harper Nichols talks about healing with art, which is so nice and lovely for me. I have the book right here, so my listener, if you're hearing me turn the pages, please forgive me. You know, there was something that you said to those who wish to start a journaling practice. Many of us with little T trauma or big T trauma are struggling to do that because what is bound to emerge on the page is bound to be super painful. Mm-hmm. You talk about this, bottom of page 29, you're nudging us, you say, not to run away from what scares us on the page that we're about to write or have written. Look at it. Don't doubt that you are capable of healing the tender parts of yourself and your story. How on earth, if someone who's listening to us is having a really hard time thinking about getting this crazy, painful story on their page in their journal, how do we help them move the energy enough to get it out onto the page? So something that I invite my clients and students to do often is to take baby steps because baby steps are still steps, right? You don't have to pour out your life's trauma on the pages of your journal. You can simply start with, where does it hurt? Why does it hurt? What do I need to feel safe and seen in this moment. And I actually even encourage people, don't go to the page first. Do a voice note journal and talk yourself through it. And then go back and listen to yourself. And then take out the most resonant pieces of that voice note and start to unpack them on the page with your why, your how, your when, 
your where. And when we take things step by step, it feels a little less daunting than to just sit down and recap the abuse we went through at five, six, seven years old. I know that to be true because I grew up in a home with a very abusive mom, both physically and verbally. And so going back there on the page is very challenging for me. And so I have to do a lot of processing. Like when I wrote my book, After the Rain, which came out in 2020, a lot of my childhood stuff is in there. And it was so challenging for me to give myself the permission to go back to that place, even though I know I'm safe now. And so it took a lot of talking myself through things. It took a lot of coddling my inner child, preparing her to show up again and holding her hand and leading her to emotional safety in the stories. And it's never easy. But it's always worth it because when we are the matriarch of healing in our lineage, we don't have a choice. We're being called to reckon with some things so that we can leave our lineage more rich and emotionally aware than we had. And so I want to just nudge people to be patient with your process on the page I'm a big believer in guided journaling. I mean, the practice you journal, everything that you offer, everything that I offer in guided journaling offerings, like there's so many things out there that can get us closer to our truth without us having to jump in the deep end to get it. Right. In fact, in the second step, you talk about that experience with your dad speeding in the car. It's really weird. I had a similar experience with a family friend Mm. and the lack of attention or consideration of your safety or needs shapes a lot. And so although that was a terrifying, terrible, really reckless experience and choice on his part, it gives way to three incredible girls who feel seen and safe and heard. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that link, that time doesn't exist. And that one terrible experience gives way to three people going out in the world with purpose and relative serenity. I just find that so touching. It makes me cry. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about how you got over writing about people in your life in negative ways, the facts of what happened, which are negative for them, and without kind of considering what might happen to them, but instead prioritizing this matriarchal healing that you are initiating, you are the source, you are the beginning of it, and you get to sort of reach back in time and forward. How do you prioritize that over hurting somebody, perhaps, with your words on the page? Mm. It's a really beautiful question and a couple of things. So one, I try my best as a writer to hold everyone's story who is a part of my own in grace. What does that mean exactly for our listener? That means for me to take a step back and look at 
what they may or may not have been going through. Now as an adult, I can do this. I couldn't always do this. Um, I don't even want to say now as an adult. I want to say now in where I am in my healing practice, I can do this before I could not. I used to hold a lot of grudges and it was keeping me from being free. So that instance with my biological father, who, by the way, I am estranged from, he's never met any of my children. I haven't talked to him in 17 years. And um, it took me a while to write about him because I'm still deeply afraid of him. And writing that essay took a lot. I think I had bad dreams that he was going to come and kidnap me. And what I had to realize is, and I, I talked through this with my therapist too, which when I was writing How We Heal, I was deep in my therapy bubble because I really needed that neutral support. And I wanted to write that essay not from a place of villainizing him, but a place of choosing myself and looking at that lesson of where fear had manifested in my life. And it manifested with my caretakers. It manifested with my parents, the people who brought me into this world. And so it's tender, but it's also deeply liberating to be able to look back and say, his complete disregard for my safety wasn't my fault. It had nothing to do with me and everything to do with where he was in his life of carelessness and not having self-value. And so that's what I mean by giving people grace, even the ones, and it is hard, and I'm not saying excuse terrible, abusive behavior, but what I am saying is let's free ourselves from taking that on. I know for a long time, I blamed my younger self for the actions of my parents because I thought it was me. I had to be the problem. I had to be the reason why I was being beat up. I had to be the reason why I was being cussed out at six and seven years old. It was me. There was something wrong with me. And now I know that it was nothing wrong with me and that I can free myself from holding on to that behavior of adults who were supposed to keep me safe. Meanwhile, the importance of therapy, if you're listening to us, sidebar and not, cannot be overestimated. It is so, so important to uh, have that neutral voice. And if you cannot afford it, uh, there are other options where you're working with a student who will probably be a really wonderful listener, but somebody is available to you. There are services in all these communities. Somebody is available to you. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, bogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. 
They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. Alex, you coming to this leads to page 76, which is, I think should be gold-plated. <laughs> page 76 is a vesica Pisces for our listener, if you can't see it. And it's one circle pain can feel like, and it lists what pain can feel like, grief, guilt, loss, unresolved trauma. There goes Alex finding the page. Yes. <laughs> Heartbreak, uh, depression, conflict with loved ones, you know, real serious, serious matters. The great matter. And then on the right side, healing can feel like relief and joy and peace and wholeness. Real things, freedom, as Alex has been talking about, understanding, boundaries, unity, self-choosing, acceptance, to name a few. When the circles overlap, you have a note just above. They can both feel like, and you have a list of words, and I thought it might be really, really lovely for our listener to have you read what healing and pain can both feel like. They can both feel like lessons, new beginning, growth, a journey, a myth, an adventure, a challenge, and self-discovery. Hmm. Okay, you can go home now, everyone. <laughs> step three is reclaiming your power, which is a beautiful next step. And by the way, for our listener, every single one of these four steps throughout the book has practices to go with it. Journaling practice, contemplative practice, meditation practice, and a talk with one of those fantastic special guests that we mentioned earlier, including some of my other dear heroes. But step three, reclaiming your power, I think is a really important step. We are, as you say on the top of page 101, meant to walk in our truth and our purpose. But no one teaches us to ask ourselves the hard questions. We are encouraged to seek the answers outside of ourselves. Go to therapy. The therapist will heal you. Go to God. Your prayers will be answered. Do meditation. The answers will come. Go everywhere but inward to find your answers. And this is the key to reclaiming your power. And for our listener, in case the memo is not clear, the reclaiming of your power happens within you. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is Alex's zone of genius. I would love for you to talk about the opening story in this chapter. You began to heal. You began to get to know yourself. No more shrinking. No more silencing your own voice for the comfort of others. 
you were tired of living out a painful story. And indeed, you found that your therapy sessions, meditations, prayers were not enough to sustain the healing work that you said you wanted. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear that transition. It's subtle and quiet, but I think it's important for our listener. I think that for me, I needed more. I needed more support. And I wasn't used to being able to name that without being considered needy or broken or you should have learned already. You should know better. And so I think what really feels supportive for me in my personal practice of healing and and writing and meditation is learning to trust that I know what I need in and outside of myself. So if I need extra support, if my prayers aren't coming, if I'm sitting on the cushion or I'm in walking meditation and I just can't find the inner peace, if my writing practice is not serving me, where can I go? And actually giving myself permission to figure that out and to not belittle myself for not having the answers that I need from meditation or prayer. I also am a big believer in working for it while we wait for it. I mean, for those of folks who who are familiar with the Bible, and I'm not a religious person, but I know my grandmama always says, faith without works is dead. And so wow. as we wait... wait let's do a hold, hold on. Okay, hold on. okay. What's, okay. Grandma's, what's grandmama's name? Hold on. I call my grandma Nana. Nana. So what's Nana's name? Vernell. Nana Vernell. Listen, faith without works is dead. Let's just hold this. Let's bring it all the way back from the wherever, 30s, 40s, 50s, right into the present day. (laughs) Right. And let's say you do have to work for it. Alex L. is not here because she didn't work for it. She's here because she worked for it. She worked on herself. She worked on her healing. And then she gives the work to her people in such a way that that we can all feel it deeply in our own hearts, no matter who we are. It's so beautiful. So, Nana Vernell, thank you for making an appearance today. <laughs> Faith without works is dead. And so it's interesting because many of us aren't taught that we have to work for it. We can't just go pray about it. We can't just go sit on the cushion about it. We have to also be willing to look at ourselves and see where we need to change, where we need to grow. And that's what I had to do. And it also made room for me to trust myself, to trust my voice, and to believe that healing myself is an act of community service. Our healing is not just for us. It is for everyone that we come in contact with. And a mantra that I've been carrying with me this past year and a half has been the healed version of me recognizes the unhealed version of you. Whoa. And it really helps me see and extend grace and compassion to the healed version of me and to the unhealed version of me. And when I'm in community and something is going on and somebody's energy is off or people are being, you know, mean or whatever, it's like, that's not about me. What is about me? Remember what is about me so that I can adjust and accept and shift 
so that I can keep steady in my healing, so that I can show up with grace and love for this person who may not be able to see that they are deeply worthy of grace and love, no matter what they're going through. You know, that ties back to the being the example of healing for folks, I think really beautifully, where even though I don't say a word about whatever it is that's helping me in the moment, other people nearby can definitely benefit from what's happening within me. And there's something very crucial about that, especially when we're younger and we're so enthused. Our ardor is just like going out of our bodies, overflowing, and we want to tell everyone. But in fact, if you're listening and this somehow is resonating with you, it might be a really good idea just to be in your own space, healing yourself, doing your good work, whatever that happens to be, and allow the example of your healing, as Alex has, to resonate with other people. This greeting, this sort of rewriting of uh, a classic greeting, the healed version of me, greets, acknowledges, recognizes, honors the unhealed version of you is quite something. And I thank you for that. Thank you. Rewriting your narrative, page 114, is where I wanted to go for our listener, for myself, really, um, taking ownership over who you are and what you want to be. If you're listening to this and you have a really crazy story, and I've said this before many times, I promise you would not want to trade your story with anyone else's because we've all got them and they're all crazy. Tell us, Alex, about what this rewriting of the narrative means to you, this full-on empowerment of the story as it was and the story as it is being told now. Mm. This really started coming to me over the past couple of years, and it's twofold. One, I do not want to heal out of survival mode. I don't want to just be healing to survive. I want to be healing, growing, and changing to thrive and receive joy. And no one talks about that part of the healing practice, of the rewriting our story. We don't have to self-improve and heal ourselves to death. What we should also <laughs> give ourselves permission to do, which I know is challenging because when we're in the work, we're in the work, right? Mm -hmm. um, is to make sure we're making space for lightness, for play for laughter, for joy. I know when I was deep in my healing work, which was a couple years ago, I wouldn't even let joy in because I was so busy healing. Joy would come up. She would come you know, knocking on the door <laughs> and I would be like, Girl, you cannot come in here. <laughs> I am serious in, my, in I, here. I, it's serious in it's here. Serious. We're not, we don't have time for what you're bringing. We are uh -huh. healing. We are healing. We are in the thick of it. And what I had to realize is, mm. no, no, no. When joy shows up, let it in. That in itself allows us to rewrite our narrative that we don't always need to be fixed and fixing. A lot of the times we just need to be witnessed and witnessing so that we can receive the joy, the love, the easefulness the lightness. We've been working so hard on ourselves. Yeah, we get it. Yes, we are healers. And we also deserve to be 
folks who are in are able to explore our healing from the lens of joy work, of joy practice. To that end, page 131 is all about nurturing your inner child, and it's an oft-discussed topic. Um, I don't think I've ever really read about it in such a sort of efficient and touching way. You say, why? Why do we need to go back and unearth our deep pain or trauma? Exploring the deep grief, you say, that seemed to come out of nowhere in our adult lives, you realize that almost all of your pain was related to things that happened in those younger years, in case you happen to be listening to us. And you are of this same mind where you're seeing that a lot of the sort of choices you're making and thoughts you're thinking and grudges you might be holding are related to those years. This is an important page. It's page 131. And read through to 133. It's not about being perfect. It's not about keeping yourself clean while you heal. There is an element of getting your hands dirty and doing the work. It is messy, as you say. But there are ways to write about all of this to begin to work it through so that you can start to think new thoughts, different thoughts. And as Alex just implored us, thoughts of joy, (laughs) thriving. I mean, this seems to be what you're working on this year. Uh, from what I can see and what you're sharing, that there is a lot of releasing and a lot of just simple, humble moments of joy. Mm-hmm. You have That's that correct. <laughs> you have that correct. Yes. Yeah, you have that correct. I am releasing to receive and I am open to what is for me. And that is... Uh, not always easy for someone like me because I have a lot of unearthing that I'm still doing. And I don't want my unearthing to become my life. I want to also be able to enjoy the garden, to sit out on the bench with the rose bushes and, yes, you know, like relax and just be there. You know, without a book in your hand, without a, a book or, or a computer. phone, no, none of that. Just relaxing, uh, yes, <laughs> softening, yes, 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 yes. You know, towards the end of the book, you talk about that mean lady in that building that you used to live in in the elevator. Yes, <laughs> dude, that was so me. I would always try and be nice to the people who were sad or mad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such mm-hmm. a funny pickle to be in because it is. A wonderful service, and it also is quite draining, uh, or can be quite draining. But you eventually got her to talk, and that's so beautiful. That's a story. Uh, our listener, it's stories on page one five one. You're going to really like it. I won't tell it right now, <laughs> but there is a. You lead into a point on one fifty three that I really appreciated. Compassion and connection are central to this work. We must, as so many of my guests have come in and uh, elaborated upon. We must begin with ourselves. But upon that, empathy for ourselves, deep compassion for ourselves, everything we've talked about, that spills over and starts to lead to ways in which we can have real compassion for other people, real compassion for people who have wronged us, uh, real compassion for the people in our past who, uh, just as you were speaking about your biological father, made choices in such a space of disregard, not just of you, as you pointed out, but of himself. 
And to feel that compassion is to connect us across time, not in a harmful way or in a draining way, but in a healing way. And that healing is what is called for right now, if I may. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that, how it's showing up in your world today now that you've, you know, sort of done a lot of this healing, but are still, you know, working. Hmm. I think it's just reminding myself that this work requires practice. And I know a lot of people have said, you know, it's a work in progress. And I often say it's a work in practice. Hmm. We have to practice this work, <laughs> this joy work, this healing work. It's a healing practice. It's joy practice. It's compassion practice. It's grace practice. Like it is, we have to practice in order to be able to see ourselves and see others, to be able to meet ourselves and to meet others. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the word practice just came up because it's just like, this is practice. We have to exercise our compassion muscle, our healing muscle, our grace muscle, our joy muscle. If we don't practice it, how is it going to become second nature to us? And in fact, it leads to what I think is my last question. I'm not sure yet, but page 192, um, Dr. Yaba Blay. Yes. Just like the greatest her piece that she wrote, I loved, by the way, how you had watercolors made of each person. So thoughtful. Healing, an active process, mm-hmm. which lines up exactly with what you were just saying. She's one of those people whom I've watched for a really long time. She had a PhD in African-American studies, women, gender studies. She's a badass academic. Like I have so much respect for that. And the choice to have her I think was very specific. And I would love to hear your reasoning for having her and what you think she adds to this work, this book, this moment in your own trajectory of healing. Well, I'm lucky to call Dr. Yaba a sister friend. She is magnificent in so many ways. And when I was interviewing her for the book, and then going back to transcribe her essay, I was so struck by her honesty that academia couldn't save her. Yeah, she left that. <laughs> she left that scene. She left that. And she oh. struggled with that decision. It was interesting to hear her talk about how at one point her worth was so wrapped up in academia and like being the strong smart black woman phd mm. yeah and how she loves being a professor she loves her students but she didn't love the systemic issues that she was facing within academia and to choose to walk away from that was a reclamation of herself and her inherent worth And so I chose Yaba because I love her. (laughs) And also because I think a lot of us think that certain titles and things are going to save us, are going to make us more credible, are going to make us more, you know, receptive. I mean, I opened How We Heal talking about my imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to sit down and write this book about healing? And I'm not a researcher like Brene Brown. I'm not a doctor like Dr. Yaba. You know what I mean? Like, Who am I? 
And I struggled writing How We Heal. And it took me a while to realize. And really, it was a conversation with Yaba that really helped me turn a corner. I had to start writing the book that I wanted to write, not the book that I thought people wanted to see from me. I was considering going back to school to become a therapist just so I could say, I have this degree. Yeah. Dude, I've had the same thought. (laughs) I get it. And it's tough. And me and my husband, you know, we had to have a lot of conversations because he's like, if you want to go back to school to become a therapist, go back to school to become a therapist, not to get the title to say you're a therapist because you think that's going to make you more worthy. He was like, your story, your experience is enough. You don't need a piece of paper to tell you that you are worthy. Now, if you want that piece of paper for your own personal education and wherewithal, go right ahead. But if you are going to go back to school and spend thousands of dollars to become a therapist just to say you're a therapist, just because your ego, don't do it. You know, her leaving academia is part of this movement. I'm reading about it right now. There's a book by Vanessa Machado de Oliveira, which is called Hospicing Modernity. I'm going to get her on this podcast if it's the last thing I do. (laughs) But she talks about this, how at a very certain point in our uh, foundation as a planetary sort of thinking organism, modernity happened. And with it came all of these white men who made it seem like and truly believed that they knew and nobody else did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We are all sitting here sipping on this coffee, this belief, Mm -hmm. still to this day. And I'm really happy that she left academia because it does for me what your book is doing also for me and for so many millions to come, which is... It bridges the conversation between my little story, the pain, the trauma, the sadness, the things that I would never talk about because they're not that big of a deal, really, really, but they are Mm -hmm. in my body, Mm -hmm. in my cells, they are. And it bridges that experience, that little tiny quote unquote experience with yours. And it makes me see that I'm not alone. It makes us all see that we have also stories to tell that might be of use and utility to other people. And it helps bring us together, which is what is so desperately needed right now. And in that, we are hospicing this fucking modernity Mm -hmm. that we have come to rely upon that includes within it all of this racism, white supremacy, all of this nonsense that has nothing to do with the reality at hand. Mm -hmm. That part. That part. I thought I would read her last answer to us. Please. In the book. It's on page 195. Music and dancing bring me joy. And so does playing on the internet. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Things that bring me joy help me heal. What's so interesting to me, again, this is Dr. Yaba Blay who's talking. What's so interesting to me is that, and this could be my Gemini rising, she puts, I love the idea of there being a Dr. Blay and a Yaba. Yep. There's the work. Yep. But there's also the person. And so whatever you think a scholar or professor or public person is, I can be that. But I'm also going to always be Yaba. 
I'm silly. I love to laugh. I love social media, Instagram and TikTok in particular. I curate weekly videos from these platforms for my online community, and it's so healing. I find it so healing to gather the material and see that we find joy actively, even in the face of white supremacy. I don't know if anyone else can do it like us. Our people know how to have a good time. Mm. Instinctually, whether we can name it or not, we know that physically in our bodies, there are endorphins and other things signaled when we laugh and smile. That is healing for me. Mm-hmm. Woo, full body chills. Mm-hmm. Full body. What a beautiful way to sort of bring the book to a close. Um, you go on by teaching on releasing what no longer serves you, which is kind of, you know, you're following along with your own book. It's so beautiful. You're you're moving toward where you are right now, which is releasing. And I find it really um, comforting, inviting, and empowering to read this book, to see where you're taking it from here, to look forward to what is next, even though I am not putting one ounce of pressure on your body <laughs> at all. But I'm so looking forward to it. And in any way that I can support you, I will forever be here for the rest of our days, Alex L. Mm, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you very, very, very much. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.